Hello, Florida Bar members and Florida registered paralegals. This is a quick reminder from the Standing Committee on Mental Health and Wellness of Florida Lawyers that you are approved to use the Florida Lawyers Helpline, a completely free and confidential around-the-clock helpline designed to support you in managing the challenges of both your personal and professional life. By dialing 833-FL1-WELL or 833-351-9355, you can connect with mental health professionals who are ready to assist you. Take advantage of up to five complimentary in-person or telehealth counseling sessions annually. And remember, there's no limit to the number of calls you can make. Reach out today. You're listening to the Florida Bar Podcast, brought to you by the Florida Bar's Practice Resource Center, Legal Fuel. Produced by the broadcast professionals of the Florida Bar. Welcome to the Florida Bar's Legal Fuel Podcast, brought to you by the Practice Resource Center of the Florida Bar. We're so glad you're joining us. This is Christine Bilbury. I'm the director of the Practice Resource Center and one of the hosts of the show, which is being recorded from our studio in Tallahassee, Florida. And I'm Jamie Moore. I'm a practice management advisor at the Florida Bar and co-host of today's podcast. Our goal at the Practice Resource Center is to assist Florida attorneys with running the business side of their law practices. We focus on a different topic each month and carry the theme through our website with related tips, videos, and articles. So a landmark ABA study revealed that 12.5% of lawyers have Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, or ADHD, compared with only 4.5% of the general population. Individuals diagnosed with ADHD often struggle with sustained focus, organization, procrastination, and completing tasks on time. And as you know, most lawyers are under a fair amount of stress, which can exacerbate their ADHD symptoms. This can have a profound effect on professional performance, their personal relationships, and overall emotional well-being. For attorneys struggling to manage their ADHD symptoms, there are effective strategies that can be used to regain focus. Joining us today to discuss lawyers with ADHD is Casey Dixon, an ICF professional certified coach and CCE global board certified coach. She is the founder of Dixon Life Coaching, an organization that helps high achievers with ADHD learn how to thrive. Casey graduated from the University of Pennsylvania Graduate School of Education with a master's in educational policy and leadership and is a respected life coach with a unique focus on science-based, innovative, collaborative coaching, advising, and thought partnering for attorneys with ADHD or executive function challenges. She has been coaching clients with executive function challenges for over 17 years. Casey works with her clients to develop the tools they need to transform the impact ADHD and executive function challenges have on their productivity and well-being. Welcome to the show, Casey. Thanks. It's so fantastic to be here with you both. Thank you for joining us. I have to say, I loved uh, your ebook, The Focused Lawyer. You pack so much into it, and I think it's very appropriate for someone that has ADHD. I mean, so many, um, when you go to find a resource to help you, the book may be 250 pages, so I think it's appropriate that this one's 21 pages. It gets <laughs> everything across. So Exactly. I like that. In the introduction, as I said, it notes that 12.5% of lawyers are reporting ADHD based on an ABA study. Why do you think this percentage is so much higher for lawyers? Uh, that is such an excellent question. And I think that 
when we learn about ADHD, what we learn is that the outcome for adults who have ADHD isn't always so terrific, right? They're more likely to drop out of school. They have a lower educational attainment. Um, they tend to not go into professional careers as much. They don't make as much money. They have chronic health conditions. All of this is related to growing up with executive dysfunction. But what we found and what I'm finding in my practice is that there are a bunch of people who have ADHD who are sort of standing out. They're high achieving. They're able to get through school um, and figure out how to enter into the professional realm. A lot of them are attracted to law. Um, so one thing we do know about people with ADHD is that they crave a high stimulation environment a lot of novelty. They love to create logical connections that other people can't maybe see or understand. They can tend to be interested in crafting arguments. Um, and they also can hyper-focus really well on getting things done under stress. They have a tendency to rely on that sense of urgency. And I think this is something that legal work provides <laughs> for them. Um, and in general, the people that I work with, the high achievers with ADHD, are smart enough to compensate for the ADHD deficits generally as they're going through their elementary school years, middle school, high school, and even into law school, and mask the fact that they are struggling in some ways internally while they're excelling on the outside. That's interesting. So some of the things that are symptoms are actually can be strengths. Um, That's right. The other reason we wanted to do this is I, I found, I know so many people personally that as adults have gotten diagnosed as ADHD. And I think along, for so long, people thought of that as like little hyperactive boys. And now right. tons of women, adult women are going to be diagnosed with ADHD. And I've seen this. So, and it can look very different, just like a woman's heart attack can look different than a man's heart attack. Yes. Can, can you tell us what some of the distinct symptoms um, are of ADHD, if there's different types and if it's, if it's going to look different in a male versus a female? It sure is um, in general. Of course, when we talk about gender differences, we're going to make some overgeneralizations. But basically, ADHD is a neurodevelopmental disorder that results in physiological differences in the brain. So it's what it's not is a willpower disorder or a character flaw or anything like that. And it's also not just about hyperactive little boys, like you said. What the DSM-5 is saying is that there's three basic types. Um, I don't find these categorizations very useful, but in terms of what psychiatrists and clinicians need to use to diagnose ADHD, they're looking for a hyperactive type. And those are your little kiddos who are running around jumping off the walls or restless legs during meetings or um, having to doodle instead, you know, while you're trying to pay attention. Um, the inattentive type is the second and that's a very sort of small percentage, but these are your, um, they're sort of drifting off and look like they may not be paying attention. There's a lot of little girls who fall into this category and therefore do not get identified with ADHD when they're going through their schooling because they're being quiet and they're well-behaved. They just not may not be getting um, what the attention that they need in order to thrive. And then there is the biggest category, which is the combined type. Um, which is characterized by both impulsive and hyperactive behaviors. The 
thing that I think is important about these categorizations is that high-functioning adults, and especially, as you said, women, need to know that ADHD does not always present with hyperactivity that's physical. So, you know, if somebody says, oh, maybe you have ADHD, and you think, well, I'm not you know, jittery and restless and physically hyperactive. In fact, sometimes I feel listless and apathetic, then that does not mean that ADHD is not part of the picture. So I think the key is that in order to understand how ADHD might be affecting individual legal professionals or attorneys is to understand that the main issue is that the brain that has an ADHD brain component has disrupted dopamine pathways. So dopamine is a neurochemical that goes into the brain and it says, hey brain, (laughs) are you finding this interesting, what you're doing right now, and rewarding? And if the brain says, eh, not really, this part's boring, I've done this before, Um, this seems really hard to me, then the dopamine does not really kick into gear. And the dopamine, when it kicks into gear, it goes into your prefrontal cortex part of your brain, it's right behind your forehead, and says, hey, executive functions that live in the prefrontal cortex, wake up and become good at your job. And if there's not enough dopamine, then the executive functions are not functioning at their best. Interesting. And do you find, I, I know that you specifically coach um, attorneys with ADHD. Yes. Do they, do they typically get prescribed the same medications that children with ADHD do? I mean, I know there's a lot of different ones out there now, but is that a component? Yes, it is. So most of um, my clients are taking stimulant medication. They're in the same exact medications that we give to kids with ADHD. And basically the job of a stimulant medication is to stimulate the production of dopamine um, in the ADHD brain so that there's more in there. So it can go into your executive into your executive functions and say, "Hey, let's let's step up our game here." Um, and for about eighty percent of the people who take ADHD medication, stimulant medication, um, that helps. For another twenty percent, that for some reason and we don't know why, doesn't really seem to help. Um, so for about eighty percent, it's a very useful treatment that can help, but it doesn't generally change a lifetime of habits. Um, and it doesn't teach you skills to manage your ADHD. Um, it just helps with the dopamine piece. So if you especially get diagnosed later in life, um, you're going to need to sort of relearn some habits and ways of approaching tasks um, so that you can really thrive. And that makes sense. The changing habits is a whole other component besides the medication. I've also heard adults that um, start on ADHD medicine. Like if if I don't have ADHD and I take a stimulant, it's going to like rev me up. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting. People that have um, been prescribed the stimulant medication will actually say, my brain is calm for the first time. Yes. And that can happen. Um, I find that there's a lot of individual variation in the reaction to medication. Um, even when ADHD is present, there are a lot of different medications to try. And unfortunately, um, there's been a bunch of studies on how ADHD medication works and which ones are the best for adults with ADHD. And what we found is that in general, an adult with ADHD might have to try several different medications before they find the right one for them. The one that I'm says that when I ask them, hey, is that really supporting you and helping you? Do you notice a 
really positive difference and they can answer clearly, yes, I really notice a difference, then they've found the right medication. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. In your ebook, you talk about the adult ADHD self-report scale. Mm-hmm. Um, where can where can the self-assessment scale be found? And if someone scores high on this assessment, what do you recommend as next steps? Well, it's a free tool um, put out by the World Health Organization. So you can just Google adult ADHD self-report scale. Um, you want to do, I think it's a set, there's a short version that has six questions and another one, I think it's 18 questions. Um, but if you fill this this questionnaire out, um, it will ask you things like, how often do you have trouble wrapping up the final details of a project once the challenging parts have been done? If you say, wow, I do that a lot, and you have a certain number of those where you answer that you have that behavior happen to you a lot, then that gives you a tool that says, hey, it's likely that ADHD is part of the problem. Um, Or if you don't, then it's unlikely. And there are other reasons for you possibly having difficulties managing what's going on in your life. So I think this is a great tool that lawyer assistance programs and law firms and individual legal professionals can use that's private, it's free, and um, it can help you to see if ADHD is possibly part of your wellness picture. It's also important and I think helpful um, to review the ADHD self-report scale and say, okay, so if I say question number two is how often do you have difficulty getting things in order when you have to do a task that requires organization? What does that really look like for lawyers and other legal professionals is the question. So as practice managers or diversity, equity, inclusion officers, or um, other professionals who are trying to support individual attorneys, you wanna be curious about what's causing your particular lawyer that you're working with to struggle. So that can look like assuming that a project or work matter is gonna be more difficult than it really will be, so avoiding the beginning because you haven't gotten it organized. It could look like avoiding long-term projects to focus exclusively on things that are screaming at you and feel urgent in the moment, which might not always be where you need to put your energy in that moment. It could look like feeling ashamed about poor organizational ability so that you put things off and then you don't have time to delegate. You don't have time to ask paralegals or other staff members for help. You're not asking for collaboration with colleagues. Um, All those things which will save you time later on as you're working through a project. It could also mean avoiding client communication because you haven't really figured out what it is that you need to communicate and how you want to do that. Um, And eventually, avoidance can look like distracted, totally being distracted by just compulsively checking phones, just relying on your email to dictate your day, or even really avoidant behaviors like spending too much time on Reddit or Instagram or playing fantasy football, et cetera. I think that you've described a lot of attorneys that we know, mm-hmm. and, I, and, and they would say, oh no, I'm just a procrastinator. Right. It, it's interesting that you're talking about they're, they're actually avoiding it probably without realizing that that's a component of it. Yeah. Hmm. 
That's right. And procrastination is one of the things I hear from people with ADHD all the time. So high achievers call for coaching or send an inquiry call in and they're saying, you know, I need better time management. I need to procrastinate. I need to be more organized. So those are the big things that we see. And what we find is that really there's a lot of nuanced stuff going on under those big categories that attorneys with ADHD really need to focus on. So one of the things that is always, a to me, a symptom of, of this in large law firms in particular is poor recording of hours or billing. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> so that looks like procrastination, but really it's a matter of poor recording of hours or billing is not exciting and rewarding to the ADHD mm-hmm. brain. So it creates no dopamine and literally feels impossible to do it while you, when you're intending to do it. I have lawyers who want to say, hey, I'm just going to do that while I'm working throughout the day or every day before I leave the office. But they really have a hard time getting themselves to do what they know they should be doing um, or intend to be doing. And that's the hallmark of ADHD. It's like, I know what to do, but I'm finding it nearly impossible to get myself to follow through on what I know. I love that you single that out as an example. Uh, We just came from a Legal Administrators Association lunch, and it's a group (laughs) of people that uh, run law firms in the area. Um, And one of the things that we always hear them complaining about is, I can't get my attorneys to, uh, you know, put in their time. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm... noting to self that I will be sending this episode out to all of those people um, to, to maybe maybe just suggest that that, that some of their attorneys take uh, the assessment. Yes. yes. <laughs> and I and I if I could just interject, I think that back again, as administrators, you have an opportunity to be curious about what is going on with individual attorneys that might make it difficult for them because they want to submit their billable hours. I mean, if you ask them, is that something that you intend to do? Of course. But, you know, they might be struggling to enter their time because it's boring. They might be struggling to enter time because it's not urgent until the end of the month. They might be struggling to remember because working memory is an executive function that is really, really problematic for people with ADHD. They might be struggling to remember what work was done. Um, And what, you know, what did they actually do? How long did it take? They might spend too much time on non-billable or administrative tasks in proportion to billable hours. Um, And so they're avoiding knowing that or revealing that. They might be discounting their own time that was actually worked on billable matters because they think it took them too long to actually do the work. So these are all ADHD-related issues that look like hey, this person's just procrastinating on their billable hours. That makes a lot of sense. So one of the statistics that jumped out at me in the focused lawyer was from a Yale Law School report called (laughs) The Truth About the Billable Hour. This just made me stop. I reread it. It states that 2,000 billable hours equals 8.6 hours per workday. And they estimated that if you take into account available business days and vacation days, an attorney will have to work 12-hour days, five days a week, all year long. Can you talk a little bit about the effect that this has and and then like the regular things a law firm, having to pull an all-nighter so now mm-hmm. you're sleep deprived. Yeah. Those kind of things can have on an attorney's well-being, especially an attorney with ADHD. Yeah, 
And I think this is where we have to look at going back to the the landmark study that you referred to, the Patrick Krill and the Hazelton Betty Ford Foundation and the ABA did in 2016, where they found that, you know, 61% of the lawyers surveyed were, were suffering from anxiety, 48% from depression and 12 and a half from ADHD. And that's, those are huge statistics that really indicate that lawyers are stressed um, and this is one of the reasons why <laughs> is because they're expected to work really, really long hours, very intensely logging everything they're they're doing, also expected to sort of sacrifice their self-care, their well-being, their time with their family, their time socially, other areas of intellectual and development. And that's why um, the task force came up with those six dimensions of lawyer well-being, which are occupational as one of them. Then we've got emotional, social, physical, spiritual, and intellectual. And so the question is, how much time and how satisfied are you as an attorney with each one of those dimensions? How much time are you giving to them? How much energy are you spending on your physical well-being? If it's really out of whack, then you're going to start to see lawyers struggling with their mental health. When you add in ADHD or other neurodivergences, um, you're going to see that some of those things that are included in the Yale study, billable hours, for example, are going to take that particular attorney longer. Um, If you are asking them to do things that they really struggle with, that they're not naturally talented at, then it's going to be even longer they're going to be staying up and pulling all-nighters, like you said, and then being sleep-deprived, then all of their productivity plummets and decision-making drops. And if they're not exercising, same thing. So <laughs> it's it really backfires. That, that type of expectation backfires um, on attorney mental health, and especially when you add ADHD into the picture. Now, one of the things that I hear from the attorneys that I work with is everything takes me longer. And I think that, yes, that's true. That's the way that they are perceiving their work. Um, It's not necessarily always true. If you give somebody with ADHD something that's really onerous, tedious, boring, not novel, not interesting, administrative, then yeah, that's going to take them a lot longer. If you give them something that's really juicy and interesting, that's in their area of expertise, that requires some creative out-of-the-box thinking and involves other people, they're going to bust through that way more rapidly than their neurotypical peers. So we have to sort of figure out how to utilize individual attorneys' strengths and weaknesses within law firms and legal environments to sort of make up for that Yale study huge problem that we're seeing. Yeah. And it's interesting because it, it, to me, it says that they also should be more careful choosing the practice area that they're selecting because if you're going to do, I mean, some people may be exci- excited by tax law, yeah. but you know, other people, <laughs> it's a snooze to begin with. So, right. you know, it, it's interesting that you you might need to position yourself differently in your legal career if you know that you want something that's novel and juicy and exciting. But absolutely so, the truth. Yeah. I do have an attorney that I work with who is an expert um, one of the top in the world in nonprofit tax law. That's her thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Not my thing, but it's her yeah. thing. And then, but I, what we do find is a lot of um, 
a lot of attorneys with ADHD tend to go into litigation because that's where the excitement of the courtroom comes into play. Yeah. You get a rush. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Um, the problem is putting together exhibit booklets and organizing mm. all of the doc review and, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that kind of stuff that can be a little less exciting. Yeah. So then maybe you need to be in a bigger firm so you have supportive staff that can step in and do the parts that are tedious for you. And it's yeah. interesting. There's a lot to think about. But when you're coaching someone, um, you mentioned executive function. Yeah. What are the things that they can do to improve their executive function? Are there routines? Are there What are some tips? Well, I think that the first thing is that the individual attorneys need to know that they don't need to go in and impact, they don't need to go in and improve all of their executive functions, right? So if we list out what are executive functions, they are things like activation, which is how to get started on a task and restarted on a task until it's finished. We have working memory, which I've mentioned. This is a big hitter for um, high-functioning people with ADHD. So working memory allows you to hold something in your mind while you're working on it, remembering what you're doing in the moment and returning to something you want to remember after a little distraction. So I'm busy working on a memo. I get distracted by an email. Now I have to go back to working on the memo. I don't really remember where I was. I don't remember what I was going to say next. I don't even remember what I did right. So I have to go back and review and kind of reinvent the wheel as I'm working. So that costs a lot of cognitive energy and time. Um, Emotional control is another work sort of executive function that can get in the way, allows you to sort of sense how you're being affected emotionally by things internally and externally and react to them appropriately. Of course, there's planning, right? Everybody with ADHD has always heard this. You need to plan. And it goes back to what you said. It's like have routines, have a daily plan, have a list of tasks. What are the steps? All that stuff to keep it in your awareness. Um, And then there are things like impulse control because people with ADHD can be impulsive and really sustaining your effort and focus and being organized. Those are, that's a lot, right? (laughs) And if you have ADHD and you go to your ADHD coach and they say, hey, you need to get better at all of that right now, you're going to take somebody who's already overwhelmed and stressed out and make them more overwhelmed and stressed out. So the way that I approach this and and Dixon Life Coaching approaches this is that we're really just going to look at how can you increase the available dopamine? Because dopamine is the key to unlock all of those executive functions. And so the way that we do that is by um, optimizing your brain function. So this goes back to what you were saying. It's like you, your brain is part of your physiology. So in order to optimize your brain function, you have to be a healthy animal first. So we're talking about really prioritizing self-care, which is going to be very difficult to do if you're working 18 hours a day. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So we need to make sure that you're eating regularly, make sure that you're sleeping consistently and enough, make sure that you're getting some kind of physical movement Um, or exercise, which we know improves executive functions for all human beings, whether you have ADHD or not. Um, Make sure that you are taking breaks. Make sure that you are practicing mindfulness or meditation. um, If that's something that 
you're interested in because that can really, really improve executive functions. And there's been a lot of studies on um, mindfulness for ADHD. And what they found is in a very short period of time, like eight weeks, um, doing very short meditations of five minutes to 15 minutes, people with ADHD had reduced ADHD symptoms. So that's a pretty big tactic that's very inexpensive, very easy, doesn't take a lot of time. And it's just hard to get yourself to do it when you are constantly responding to the urgencies of work and putting everything else aside. So that's the first thing, right? Be really taking care of yourself and prioritizing that first. Um, Secondarily, then we look at routines and plans and systems to make sure that you have those in place so that you know what you're intending to do in the moment rather than wasting a lot of cognitive energy deciding. Um, I can tell you an example of this. So (laughs) it seems a little simplistic, but I I work with a, a federal judge who has ADHD. And I like to tell this story because most people would think, well, he's, you know, really advanced in his career. He doesn't need a morning routine to get himself to court on time or to work on time, but he actually does. And because he has ADHD, that routine needs to be developed in a very sort of detailed manner so that he actually can show up to work on time. So what was happening with him is that he would get ready, get downstairs, land at the coffee maker. While the coffee was brewing, he starts checking his phone. Next thing you know, he's checking his stocks. He's checking his emails. (laughs) You know, he's looking at the news and all of a sudden, oh my gosh, 20 minutes went by and I'm standing here looking at my phone, drinking coffee when I was supposed to leave 10 minutes ago. So in order for him to get out of um, his house and get to work on time, he actually wrote out his morning routine like a script for him to follow so that it doesn't cost him any cognitive energy at all. He doesn't have to decide what am I supposed to be doing next? How long does that take? Where am I supposed to be now? He writes it all out. Then he had them printed up as sticky notes. So every morning he gets up and he rips off one of those sticky notes and carries it around with him until he's out the door. It seems really simplistic, but that's how this judge can show up to work on time with a full battery of cognitive energy rather than a depleted battery of cognitive energy. I love your example because I think decision-making can be exhausting for anyone. It is. (laughs) And and so it's almost like you use up your quota or your allotment of decision-making so that by the time you get home and someone says, what do you want for dinner? Oh, it's too much. That's, that's the worst question in the world. <laughs> right? And, and that's very common for people that we consider neurotypical. If you have ADHD, you've already decide, decided, you know, what time do I get up? Do I really have to get up now? Or can I push the snooze button again? Do I need to, am I working at home today or am I working at the office? Do I need to, you know, take a full shower or do I sl- sort of slap on work clothes? <laughs> you know, the, like everything. Do I need to eat breakfast? How much time do I have? What time do I need to be here? Where? What am I needed to focus on today? Oh no, my email is now telling me what I need to focus on. So all the th- decisions I just made flew out the window. By the time that person arrives at work, they are already limping along with a low battery. Yeah. Make those decisions in advance. That's, That's exactly smart. right. Yeah. And yeah, I'm sorry. This prompts a question. Um, 
just speaking of like making decisions, do you think kind of preaching minimalism to people <laughs> helps them with their ADHD? I mean, I don't know. I just feel myself so free when I just have no clutter and nothing in my office and it, it, it helps me, it helps me uh, focus. Fewer distractions. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that can help. I think that it depends on the person. So yes, having fewer choices will definitely help. Um, so one of the things that, you know, just a really simplistic example is what am I going to wear today? <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. And if you take that and you say, okay, I'm just having a very minimal wardrobe that doesn't include too many choices, then mm -hmm. I don't have to waste a lot of time and energy on that in the morning. So yes, I think that's a good approach. One of the things that we found with our high achieving clients is that sometimes they do need distracting environments in order to function better. Um, so it's a little counterintuitive. Some of my clients need to be in a very quiet room with noise canceling headphones that have nothing on the walls and, you know, very little distraction. And some of them need to be in a busy coffee shop or in a busy sort of environment with other people running around and music and or noise so that they can sort of part of their brain turns off the distraction seeking part and they can then focus on what it is that they need to be doing. That makes sense. It's almost like you need to equalize your environment with what's going on inside your head. Yes. That's to... a great way to put it. I love that. And one of the examples that you have in your book is you talk about um, a female attorney who would get go down, and you mentioned this before, down the rabbit hole of checking, you know, Twitter and Facebook and her email and stuff. And like, you lose all this time. How do you, you've got to use those devices. So what do you, if with your clients that have those constant distractions, what are the things that you tell them about all of their electronic devices? Well, I think that we do need to use them, obviously. And this is one of the things that I think when you're working with attorneys with ADHD, the intervention really needs to be targeted to attorneys and legal professionals with ADHD because time management folks who don't understand ADHD are not going to understand why their strategies don't work. Um, and people who are working with ADHD but don't understand the legal environment are also going to be confused. <laughs> why can't you mm -hmm. just turn off your email notifications or what, <laughs> you know, I don't understand, put your phone away. Um, and I think, so what we do have to do is just ask specific attorneys in our coaching environment, what can you do to make that thing that you need to do a little less demanding, a little less in your face, a little less distracting. Let's make it 10% better rather than hundred percent better and see what works for you. Um, but there are a couple of very specific things. One is that you can use um, software to block certain apps on your phone so that Twitter is not available, but your email is still there. You can take certain apps off of your phone so that you actually have to take time to download them before you jump on them, which by the time it downloads, you're already moving on to something else generally. <laughs> um, you can, I have a, a client who took a little mini shelf and attached it to the bottom of his desk. So the phone it literally goes in there so that it's not on the desk, which means out of sight, out of mind. Really simple solutions to very complex problems can often be the most successful. Um, but again, this is going to be dependent on the work environment and the individual attorney, what works best. But I do think having specific time set aside 
in your day, rather than just jumping into the work task at hand, will help you to say, okay, when am I going to check my email? When am I going to give myself a break and go check Twitter? When am I going to plan my day? When am I going to start working on that task? Um, All of those things puts the individual attorney or legal professional back in the driver's seat rather than letting everything else drive them around. Well, speaking of Twitter and (laughs) other social media apps, do you think social media in general has triggered an increase in ADHD diagnosis? I think it, it's a really great question. And I don't think it's that easy to answer. But what I do know and what we do know now is that um, ADHD or social media can be very distracting, right? And when your brain is seeking dopamine, remember the ADHD means you don't have enough dopamine. So your brain is hungry for dopamine and it's going to be looking in the external environment for more. And one, a couple of things that give us instant dopamine hits are Twitter and you know, even LinkedIn and Reddit and our email, because you don't even know what you're going to find in there, right? It's like, oh, what am I going to find? It could be good, could be bad. I don't know, but at least it's going to be something that is not this boring thing that I'm not getting any dopamine from. So our brains can intentionally direct us towards um, interruption and distraction. So what we want to do is try to make the thing that you're working on rather than the social media more interesting and more novel and more dopamine creating, but that doesn't answer your question. So the answer to that question is, yes, these things create distraction in our lives. And I think everybody is more distracted than we were before social media was such a huge part of our lives. On the other hand, a lot of adults who are participating in TikTok, for example, are learning about ADHD for the first time. And they're seeing a a lot of people on there self-disclosing their ADHD, making funny videos about it, how it, how, what it looks like, but also really spreading good information about what ADHD looks like for adults, for adult women, for high achievers with ADHD. And that information was not widely available ever before. Um, And so they're self-diagnosing through social media. They're also feeling like it's a little bit normalizing. So what I'm experiencing is not just me. There are other people in the world that I can relate to who are experiencing these same challenges um, or behaviors that I'm witnessing. And then they can go and take the self-report scale and take it to their doctor or take it to their practice manager or their HR person or their disability services person and have start having discussions about treatment. One of the things you have to be very careful of, and this is a brand new study that just came out, I think, two days ago, um, is that only about 50% of the information on TikTok about ADHD is actually correct. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know that's shocking. So I think it's 52% of it was found to be misleading. So you don't want to learn everything about ADHD from social media, but there is some value there. Um, for helping people to understand what it is and that you, you know, if you're experiencing some of these difficulties with your executive functions, then it's worth looking into because the good news is that ADHD is very treatable. 
Yeah, and you're, it's interesting that social media is such a distraction, but at the same time, it's de-stigmatizing um, yes. all of this, I, which is so powerful, so important. But now I'm there's there's a guy in my Instagram feed who has ADHD as an adult, and he puts up things every day that things he wished he'd known before mm-hmm. he was diagnosed. And like taking an extremely cold shower, mm-hmm. like resets his brain. And then all these people chime in and say, oh, yeah, that, that works for me. So it's it's interesting. Like if it's not harmful, you can kind of experiment right. some of these things. <laughs> Exactly. It's one of the, it's, we call that at Dixon Life Coaching, a physical reboot. If you're really Ah. spinning and you're super stuck, try a physical reboot. So that could be a cold shower. could be just Ah. going for a walk around the block. It could be doing 10 jumping jacks. It could be yawning and standing up and stretching. Um, Could be going and looking out the window, getting a snack. There's all sorts of, and this is where I think social media has helped, right? There's, and YouTube, there's a lot of good information too, where Again, if it's not harmful, you can experiment and see what works for you and what doesn't. Um, One of the things that we do with our clients at Dixon Life Coaching is we develop a personal playbook, sort of like a handbook to me. So what works for me? when and in what situations. And because I have ADHD, I might not remember what works for me. And I'm just going to dive into a shame cycle and get stuck or dive into doing the work and not do it as efficiently as I would like to do. So rather than doing that, helping that person to create a pause moment and say, okay, what works for me when I'm in this situation or when I have to do this type of productive task? Well, in your ebook, you talked about um, ADHD can co-occur with other conditions such as depression or anxiety. Um, Can medications that are prescribed for anxiety or depression also treat ADHD symptoms? I think it depends. (laughs) It depends on the individual who is being prescribed those medications because one of the things that we found is that ADHD can be a foundational disorder, meaning if you start treating the ADHD, some of the depression or anxiety might go away because ADHD is creating feelings, untreated or undertreated ADHD is creating feelings of depression because you don't understand why is everything so difficult for me? Why does it look so easy for everybody else? Why do people keep telling me I expected you to do better um, because you're so good at these things, but why aren't you better at these other things? And this is true for anybody with a neurodivergence. They experience these sort of judgments. And what we know about people with ADHD is that they hear about, I think it's 16,000 more negative messages by the age of 12 than neurotypical kids. So that can create anxiety and depression. Um, So a lot of the clients that I work with um, do take medication for ADHD and also for depression and anxiety. Um, But I'm really glad you brought that up because going back to sort of the legal field and this landmark study and some of the things that the legal profession has been trying to do to help um, the well-being of lawyers and legal professionals. Um, I feel really we need to shine a light uh, on the ADHD part of that. So the Krill report said, "Hey, yeah, look, twelve and a half percent of people are suffering from ADHD in the legal profession." But then when we did the um, the resolution that the ABA passed and the national task force, and then the legal profession pledge campaign, and even um, the wonderful toolkit, the wellbeing toolkit by Ann Bradford, none of those things mention ADHD. 
You're right, because um, I'm the uh, staff liaison for the Mental Health and Wellness of Florida Lawyers, and we we refer to that report constantly, and it's all about the excessive drinking and the anxiety and depression. This fell through the cracks. Like, I didn't even... For, this didn't rise to the surface for me on a level of awareness until Jamie, you know, brought it forward. I knew it was an issue, but I didn't know it was part of that report. Yeah. And and I think it's the crucial part for me is that if we look at comorbidity statistics and that 80% of people with ADHD also struggle with two or more mental health concerns in addition to the ADHD, what we know is that these things travel in packs. So if you're struggling with depression or anxiety or even problematic drinking, ADHD could be a foundational reason. It could also just be an accompanying piece of that, right? It's like a it just friends and family plan kind of a thing. <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah, yeah. It's, it's like, <laughs> let's get that as a bundle. But one of the things that I always say to people is, can you imagine trying to treat anxiety or depression or substance use or problematic drinking with untreated ADHD where your executive functions are limping along and you're having difficulty organizing, making decisions, activating on tasks, creating self-supportive habits, developing new routines, asking for help, dealing with the shame cycle that comes with that. So to me, if you are if you're out there helping an attorney with these issues, it's really responsible to also do a quick assessment, which doesn't take a lot of time or money, to see if ADHD might be part of the picture. That's, that's so eye-opening for me because if someone is hungover at work or they're, you know, shut down, so depressed, those are the things like the kind of the headline things that get attention. Those are the things that they go straight for. Yep. And so what you're saying makes so much sense that you're just going to be treating symptoms. You're not going to get to the root of it if you haven't ruled this out. That's that's huge. Yeah. And we know that lawyers are more susceptible to problematic drinking than non-lawyers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we all, oh, yeah. you know, and it's, and it's terrible because of the Yale study is a great example why. There's just a tremendous amount of stress and competition and expectation for perfection. The other thing is we know that people with ADHD are 50% more likely to have substance use or problematic drinking. So again, it can be part of the picture. Well, and if you're self-medicating and there's a stigma about getting help with this, it's it's a vicious cycle. Yeah. Like that seems, wow. Well, um. You know, some people who are diagnosed with ADHD, they may feel it's a negative diagnosis. How can focusing on their strengths and interests turn ADHD into a positive? Well, I've seen this happen oh, time and time again. I think when clients of mine or lawyers with ADHD who are feeling really overwhelmed and and maybe even verging on burning out, um, they spend a lot of time masking, right? So ADHD is an invisible disorder. You can't see it. You might see clues like, oh, that person has a really disorganized office or that person's always turning in things late. But in general, you can't see it. So because the lawyers with ADHD have been so adept at not showing it to the outside world, they spend a lot of time and energy masking. They may not even know they're doing this, right? That's exhausting. By the time they look for help, Generally, it's like, oh, I don't believe that this can ever be a positive for me because I'm, I'm 
it's like one of the things that people are saying is that ADHD is life on hard mode. It just makes everything more difficult. And that is true. And ADHD can be turned into a really beautiful, productive way of engaging with your life, with others, with your work. Um, but it takes treatment and awareness. Um, and that's very hard to find when you are a high achiever who sort of hasn't been recognized for having ADHD symptoms because you're doing too well on the outside. Um, so one of the clues is if you are sort of experiencing this like sense of, wow, I look really good on the outside, but somebody's going to discover that things are falling apart underneath the hood or behind the mask, then it's time to sort of ask for help. But to go to your question about strengths, what we do know is that people with ADHD are more creative than people without ADHD. Um, I don't know if that's a brain artifact or is it a fact that they just have had to be to get through life and be successful. Uh, but there's been a number of studies to show that um, teams or organizations who bring in employees with ADHD and accept their ADHD and help to accommodate for some of the ADHD challenges um, are more productive teams than without those people. Um, so embracing this sort of neurodivergence can help teams increase their productivity. And some of the top lawyers that I work with, um, they're, they're lead attorneys on, I have one that's on a billion dollar legal case right now as the lead attorney. He didn't get there because of all of his challenges. He got there because of his strengths. The problem is he's so stressed out and everything's falling apart or he was until he started to address the ADHD part. So once we work on the ADHD, which means talking about medication and also through coaching or other psychosocial interventions, he can sort of put some routines in place. We can notice what's going on with him and where things are falling apart and design some systems and structures and tactics to help him get better at the things that he needs to get better at. But more importantly, not spend all of his beautiful, magnificent cognitive abilities on the things that he's terrible at, right? We want to give people a chance to spend as much time and energy as possible on the things that they are glorious at the strengths that they bring to the table. And everybody has them, even people who are struggling with ADHD. And in general, those tend to be things like, wow, they're really good in an emergency or when things are urgent. They are creative, problem solving. They really deeply care about the needs of other people um, and get excited when somebody brings them a project. They tend to be overly optimistic unless they're really, really overwhelmed when that can take a shift to the very defeated. They can be great researchers because they're really curious and want to find every last thing that there is to know about a topic, which is also called rabbit holing. <laughs> <laughs> they can hyper-focus on something, which can also backfire if you are working on a project and you're hyper-focused and you forget to eat or sleep or you know get up and take a break. But if you need somebody to do that on your legal team, they can be the best person on your team. So I think it's really about identifying individual strengths, 
and utilizing them as much as possible in your work day. One of the things I do with my clients is I ask them, well, what do you want to be known for? Because rather than saying, what are you good at? Which is sort of passive, right? If I'm really good at putting together a legal brief, okay, well, what are you going to do about that? Uh, well, I'm already good at it, right? (laughs) (laughs) So if I say, what do you want to be known for? And they want to say, they say, well, I really want to be known for being the best in my field at writing a legal brief. Okay. So what are you going to do about that? Oh, well now I need to take an action to become that, use that drive and that motivation and that interest. Those are the things that help create dopamine to become the best brief writer on my team. That makes total sense. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And and it's a very natural segue into my next question. So we've talked a lot about the individual. Um, if I know that I have some um, staff or attorney that are ADHD and, um, you know, they're super performers, what are the things that a firm can be doing to support these individuals, to create an environment that works better for them? Are there things that can be done holistically at the firm? There absolutely are. And I think you know, taking the well-being pledge is one of those things because they specifically in that pledge, firms who have signed on to that say, you know, we're going to provide confidential access to experts and resources, including free in-house assessment tools, which is not very difficult to do with ADHD. You can develop proactive policies and protocols. This is all part of that pledge to support the assessment and treatment of mental health problems. Um, and also actively and consistently demonstrate help-seeking and self-care as good things. (laughs) Um, So one of the things I'm working with um, several law firms um, that we are providing in-house CLEs for them to reduce the stigma around ADHD, to increase the understanding of how ADHD can play a role. Um, We're doing a lot of diversity, equity, and inclusion panels So those are the kinds of things that are pretty easy for law firms to help is just to get out there and say, hey, this could be something um, that is part of the well-being picture for our attorneys, and let's talk about it. If you don't have a well-being committee, launch one. If you have one, then I think one of the things that I've seen in larger law firms in particular is when the well-being committee, the diversity, equity, inclusion people, the HR, the disabilities folks, and the practice managers all get together to find solutions and provide support for the entire staff and for the attorneys that are working within the firm. And then also to realize that there are inexpensive ways to support individual attorneys For example, one of the attorneys that I was working with who increased her billing within, I mean, she increased her billing 150% in eight months of working with a coach, her law firm paid for her coaching, which was way less expensive for them (laughs) than having her billing come in under par, providing an assistant for her that was part-time, also incredibly helpful, reducing her required hours, which took off a lot of the pressure and the stress and actually ended up, she was reporting greater hours than expected. So some of these little tricks that law firms can use are really, really effective. Um, I'm working with two of the AmLaw 100 firms right now to bring the focused lawyer coaching groups internally to the law firm. So it'll just be lawyers that work at those firms will be available to participate in a group coaching program for lawyers with ADHD. 
So there are really interesting, specific things that lawyers, law firms can be doing to help with their particular clients. And I also have a focused lawyer group that I run, and of course, one-to-one coaching. And I have about, it's 10 of the AMLA 100s who are paying for their clients or their lawyers to be clients of mine. And of course, I'm not the only person in the world who provides services, right? So finding services that are appropriate to get diagnosis and treatment and seeing that as a cost that will reap greater benefits, both financially and client satisfaction, it also mitigates risk for the law firm is a really important shift in your perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And so many of those things that you mentioned are good for everyone at your firm. Exactly. Being healthier, being less stressed. I love that. Well, um, we are going to um, put up some um, of the uh, things we've talked about, links to them so that you can find them. But if our listeners have questions, how can they find you and your resources, Casey? Um, So people can, if they have questions about anything that they've heard today or want to explore that further, um, first thing that they can do is find me on the internet. (laughs) It's DixonLifeCoaching.com, which is D-I-X-O-N LifeCoaching.com. You can also feel free to email us at info at DixonLifeCoaching.com, and we will be happy to field your questions. Um, We do have, we've, since 2017, I've worked with 140 plus lawyers from 130 different law firms. And what I've learned from them is that we need to design lawyer specific programming. (laughs) Just like I talked about. So we have one-to-one coaching for lawyers. We also have small group coaching that I just talked about, which is called the Focus Lawyer Program. So if they want to check that out, they can do that. We also offer CLEs, in-house workshops, and diversity training for law firms. Um, And so if anybody's interested in talking about any of those things, feel free to reach out to us and see what we can do together to reduce stigma and help people really thrive. Excellent. Well, it looks like we've reached the end of our program. Thank you so much, Casey Dixon, for joining us today. I just want to thank you for helping us shine a light on ADHD in the legal profession. And and it's so important for the well-being of the industry and for the individuals who are struggling. So I can't thank you enough. Absolutely. Thank you. If you like what you heard today, please rate us an Apple podcast. Join us next time for another episode of the Florida Bar's Legal Fuel podcast brought to you by the Practice Resource Center of the Florida Bar. I'm Christine Bilbury. And I'm Jamie Moore. Until next time, thank you for listening. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalFuel.com. Don't miss an episode by subscribing to the Florida Bar's podcast via iTunes, Google Podcast, Spotify, and RSS. Find the Florida Bar's Practice Resource Center Legal Fuel on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by the Florida Bar. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.